Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you that may not have been here the last few weeks or are visiting, uh, we have been doing our fall sermon series and in particular have been focusing on Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapters 1 through 8, which scholars and commentators who have written commentaries on the Bible have referred to as the gospel according to Paul. And what Paul has been doing up to this point is building a case. He's starting off by saying in Romans 1 that, you know, who God is, his power, his character, what he's like, what his desire for us is, is evident to everyone, if you're honest, if you're willing to see. And then as we get toward the end of chapter 1, Paul basically says, but sin is pervasive. And you get to Romans chapter 2 and he starts talking about, well, the Jews have the law and the Gentiles have their consciences. And as he continues to build the case of the gospel, he's trying to build a foundation that says, when you understand who you are as a human being, then you will understand God's provision in Jesus Christ. Only then will you understand. Because up to that point where you really understand the human condition and that we have a need that we cannot provide for ourselves, that God has provided for us and he has provided a Savior for us. So that's the case that he's building in Romans 1 through 3. The human condition... Human. We are all flesh and blood. We all have a soul. Condition. Because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve, we are sinners. Sinners in need of a Savior. We have all failed. That's the case that Paul is building here. And then he kind of leans in, in Romans chapter 3, and he says, well, you know, we've been talking about this, and are the Jews special? Do they have an advantage? Are they different than everybody else? And he says, yes and no. Like a good Jewish person would say. (laughs) Yes and no. What does that mean? He starts off in verse 1 saying, well, yes, the Jews have an advantage. And then he goes in verse 9 and says, well, they don't really have an advantage. Because of the case he's building, if you really understand what he's saying, he's saying they are the chosen people. We refer to the Jews as the chosen people. But what does that mean? They were chosen by God to reveal himself to them. A special race, if you will. In fact, when Peter writes his letter, and he's writing to the Jews, the Christian Jews at large, But he's talking to Christians. He's saying you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's holy people. He's saying, in effect, the same thing. You're a chosen race, that God has chosen you. He has set you apart. This is the gospel. And because you've accepted the gospel by faith, you are different. 
So he's saying, you're a different kind of people, you Jews. And if you think about it, they have the advantage of having not only God's revelation, but the law. And he points that out here. They have the law. But what is it when God makes his covenant with Abraham? Because he makes a covenant with Abraham, he makes a covenant with Moses, and Paul is bringing both of these heroes of the Jewish faith in. Well, what was the mark of the covenant to Abraham? Circumcision, right? You all remember that. Circumcision. Well, you know what? If people were to look at a Jew, how would they figure out that they're different people? Not because of circumcision. I mean, I don't know if that's ever dawned on you. But the sign of the covenant is circumcision, but no one would know that. So what makes them different? Well, let's fast forward to Moses. The law. The law is given so that they would understand what it means to be a holy people. The word holy means separated ones. If people are really going to understand that you are a different people, that you're in a covenant with me, I'm giving you this law so that you understand what the distinction is, how you're going to be holy as I am holy. So he gives them the law. That's what would make them different. That's what what would make them holy, that God in his character is a holy God. And he wants his people to be like him. God had already released the people from Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt, and they've been released. And he's saying, now that I've called you, now that you've followed my call, here's what it looks like to be my people, holy. So that's what Paul is saying. You know, the Jews have this. That's what makes them different. But not if you don't respond to it. You might have the knowledge, but you don't act on the knowledge. You might not even have the knowledge. This is the law for periods of time in Israel's history. They didn't even know they had the law. They kind of knew they had the law. They kind of knew they were the covenant people, but they didn't really know it. Let me draw an analogy for you. Someone gives you a computer, okay, a laptop. You have no idea what it is. You have no idea what it's supposed to be used for. Because no one has ever showed you. You know you have this computer. Yes, I have a computer. And if you think about it, it'd make a great tray table to carry a plate on when you're sitting down for dinner. Right? Because you don't know what it's supposed to be used for. Make a great paperweight. Hide papers underneath it. Because you've been given it, but you have no idea. Then someone explains to you what a computer is, what its purpose is, what it's for. So now you have the knowledge. But you don't act on the knowledge. That's why Paul's saying that the Jews really have no advantage. Because they've been given the law, but they're actually ignorant of what it actually says or what it actually means for their lives. 
The Jews are condemned by the law because they've been given the law, but they don't really follow the law. It's like saying, I know what will make me healthy. I know what I should do to be a healthy person. I have the knowledge, but I don't act on it. That's what Paul's saying. And that's why both Jew and Gentile are condemned. They're both unrighteous. They're both sinners. They're both in need of a Savior. Now, why is he making this point? Because, and you have to go back to the introduction, and you can listen to it online or get the CD, because there's tension in the church of Rome between the Jewish leadership and the Gentile leadership. And Paul is basically saying, Yes, Jews have an advantage in that they were called to be the chosen people. Yes, Jews have the advantage. They were given the revelation of who God is. Yes, they were given the advantage because of the law, that this is what holiness looks like. But they, like the Gentile, in both cases, haven't acted on it totally and completely. Everybody's imperfect. Or as Paul draws the conclusion, when he gets to Romans 3.20 and Romans 3.23, none are righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None get there by works of the law because everybody's imperfect. All is sin. So you're all on the same page, just so you understand this. That's what he's saying. We all have the same need. We all fall short. We all fail. So how does Paul proceed once he establishes that? He actually starts quoting from the Psalms. Now, why would he do that? Why would he quote from the Psalms? Well, for the Jews, the Jews would see the Psalms as prayers, which they would be familiar with from their childhood. And then they became Christians. They were still prayers that Christians used. The Gentiles would see it as something they were being taught as part of the prayer life of one who's a believer. They used it as a hymnal. So you know how you memorize words and phrases and, if you will, poetry better when it's put to music than when it's not. Well, now they're memorizing it. So he starts quoting from a couple of psalms, and in particular, he quotes from two psalms that begin the same. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, why would he do that? Why would he quote from those psalms? They wouldn't know what the first verse is and where the psalms are heading. Because he's basically saying in both cases, both the Jews and the Gentiles, you're either creating your own God or you're not really believing the God that exists. You're living as though you don't believe in God. That's why you need a Savior. Let me read to you from Psalm 14 just for a moment. It starts out, as I said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, any who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. They would all know where he's coming from when he says this. That you are living as if there is no God, or you have corrupted the whole idea of God. When have we seen that before? Let's start with the people of Israel. We start with, they come out of Egypt, they're riding high, they've just seen all these miracles, they've been delivered, they've been liberated, 
And they get out in the wilderness. Moses goes up Mount Sinai and they say, where is he? And so they make a golden calf. Well, that didn't take long. Before they set up a God who affirms what they want to believe about how life should be lived. Their own God in their own mind. So that's an example. Then let's fast forward to the prophets. The prophets who say, you're forgetting God's word. You're forgetting what God is like. He's calling you to this. And they act like children that are being corrected. And how often times children who are, not, who are being corrected say, I don't want to hear it. That's in effect how they act. I don't want to hear it. We're that way too. Right? Someone corrects you, I don't want to hear it. And so they shut up the prophets. They persecute the prophets. They kill the prophets because they don't want to hear. Paul's saying you're living as though you're godless. You're living as though you're idolatrous and yet you're claiming to be faithful. You're claiming to be good. And that's not reality. That's not reality. We do it today. How many of you saw the sports section this morning? See the sports section? All right. Some of you did. Did you catch this article on the front page of the sports section? I'm not a car racing fan. You know, I have other sports that I like. Uh, but once in a while I'll read the news about car racing. And this, this NASCAR driver, Jimmy Johnson, aims for Dover dominance in 500th start. And he's quoted... The racing gods have smiled on me and this team. Who are the racing gods? See, we throw lines like that out there like no big deal, right? I hear sports commentators and people I play golf with, golf with the, golf, the golf gods are out to get me today. What golf gods? You know, if you're a believer, you might say, God has blessed me today. I'm just having a great round. Or, you know, if you're having a lousy round, where the heck is God today? You know, or I didn't have a good quiet time this morning, I guess. I don't know. But see, we throw these phrases around and everybody just kind of shakes their head, yeah. What are they thinking? What gods are we talking about? I'm serious. See, because either you believe that God has blessed you or God didn't feel that you needed that or on the other hand, that you were lucky or unlucky because that's what it comes down to. What gods? See, in, in some ways we're still like pagans. Our culture. Because we have all these different gods out there. The God of my own creation. These gods of racing. These gods of golf. We in part believe some of that stuff. Or at least our culture does. Because there's all these different beliefs out there about if there's a God, who God is, and therefore how we act. And it's amazing how many people come to the conclusion, I'm basically good, right? And Paul comes to the conclusion, none are righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And he would say to the Galatians when he writes to Galatians, and none are justified by works of the law because all fall short. And that's why as he draws this section, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 to a close, we arrive at verse 20 and 23. 23 in particular, none are righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's setting it up so that we understand we have a need, and our need is for a Savior. Now, most of us settle on or land on the wrong things that we do, the actions, the deeds. But if you look in Paul's letters consistently, over and over again, he will refer to actions as well as motives, as well as character, as well as conduct, as well as what the tongue says. Over and over again, it's the whole package of who we are. And if you really look at every aspect of who we are and we're honest with ourselves, we know we fall short. We know it. We know we're not perfect. Because all those different aspects. In fact, I will never forget the first time that I read the letter of James. I'm reading the letter of James, chapter 1, and I get to this verse that just totally caught me off guard. It says, if you fail in one point of the law, you fail in the whole of it. You're accountable for the whole of it. And I stopped reading, and I, my first reaction, see, because it, it, I was young in my faith, and I still had a touch of the Pharisee in me, okay? And, I, and my first reaction was, that's not fair. That's not fair. One point in the law, you're guilty of all of it? See, I was still thinking, I'm, yeah, but I'm better than most people around. Well, we all do that. We compare ourselves to everybody else instead of to a perfect God. Which is why we read a verse like that and say, really? I'm guilty of all of it? Yes. Because that one failure has put us in the category of being a sinner. In need of a Savior. That one failure. See, we don't think like that. You know how we think? Let me give you, let me give you an illustration. When I was in eighth grade, there's a reason I'm going there. I just got an invitation last week for my 40th high school reunion. It's going to be over Thanksgiving. So I started thinking about school and I started thinking about classmates. And, and my mind races back while I'm writing this sermon to eighth grade. Eighth grade, they did an experiment. The administration did an experiment with us in one class. Our class in particular. It was algebra. And what they wanted to see is how we did if we just taught ourselves and work at our own pace. And when we were ready to take a test, we would take the test. And if we failed, we had to do it over again. If we passed, and the teacher would be there available for us for any consultation. And we could work in teams if we wanted, except when it came to the test time. So they gave us all these rules and they said, have at it. Well, see, that's really dangerous for me. For a couple of reasons. First, when you set me loose and I'm competing against everybody else in the class, it taps my competitive spirit. And I can be a tad competitive. Yeah, I know. It's hard to believe. And especially in math, because that was my strong suit. That's why I went into the ministry. <laughs> but I loved math at that point. 
So I immediately started taking off and started taking the tests, and I was doing well one right after another. And I'll never forget this really good friend of mine, Tony Buffiel. And they, by the way, they would announce it to the class who took what test when and what they got on it. So everybody was motivated, like, oh, wow, I really got to get going or whatever. Tony Buffiel, good friend of mine, just loved Tony. He was a fun guy. <laughs> they announced, the teacher announced, Tony Buffiel, you got a 49 on this test. That's almost half. So Tony came up to me afterwards. See, they weren't afraid to embarrass people back then. Like, like now you're not sensitive if you say something like that. Right? Back then, they didn't care. So Tony comes up to me and says, Greg, would you be on my team? Meanwhile, I'm like 10 chapters ahead of him. I'm getting A's. And I said, sure, Tony, I'll help you. Now, I was not perfect in all my testing. See what we always want, which is what I always wanted in some of my other classes? We want to buy, or we want the grade to be done on a curve. Remember those days? We want it down on a curve. See, like, like maybe we get in the low 70s, and one person in the class maybe gets in the 80s, and everybody else is like failure grade. And you go to the teacher and say, that was a really hard test. Just look at all the scores. Would you grade on a curve? We want God to grade on a curve. That's really what we want. We, and interestingly enough, we want the curve to favor us, right? See, when, when you start doing those kind of games with God, guess what? Now you're making heaven attainable by your good works, by human achievement, instead of understanding that it doesn't come by that. Salvation, a relationship with God, Understanding what God wants from us and for us does not come by human achievement. It comes by grace. It comes by faith. That we respond with our life and we turn our lives over to the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. So that right on the heels of verse 23, right on the heels... He basically says, and this is God's provision. God has sent a Savior, a sacrifice of atonement for you. Because He knows you're not perfect. He knows you have a need. And He loves you. And He desires to extend His grace to you. A gift in the person of Jesus Christ to show the depth of His love. The phrase, sacrifice of atonement. It's a made-up word, at one meant. That God wants to be at one with us. That we would be his people and he would be our God. At one meant. That's why he sent Christ. And the Jew's mind would immediately go back to Leviticus. The day of atonement. When there would be a sacrifice, a shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. And what Paul is saying is this sacrifice, this shedding of Jesus' blood, once for all, for your sin, so that you can know salvation for all eternity in the one sacrifice of my son, Jesus. So you don't have to earn your way. This is not about legalism. 
This is about faith. That's what he's trying to say. The Greek word is propitiation. Which as we read in chapter 1, God's wrath is poured out. That Jesus took on God's wrath. That he who knew no sin became sin. So that we might know the righteousness of God. And what Paul goes on to say throughout his letter now, seven times, the righteous shall live by faith. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We're righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice. His sacrifice of atonement, his death in our place. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the call on our lives, that we live by faith. Trusting him and him alone. Not trusting ourselves, not trusting these gods that are out there, whatever you conceive them to be. Not making up a God of your own creation, trusting in him. And as he unfolds this, the righteous shall live by faith, he uses three words that describe this righteousness that comes by faith. What Jesus did for us. The first is ransomed. If you know the Greek background of the word ransomed, the word ransomed, it's as if a prisoner of war was captured. The war is the spiritual battle. And we are the prisoner. And Jesus volunteers to do a prisoner exchange and take our place. Ransomed. Second, redeemed. The Greek term there with redeemed has to do with a slave who is enslaved, much like we were, we are slaves to sin before Christ, much like the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And someone has to pay the price so that the slave can become free. And Jesus paid the price with his life for all of us, for all of our sin, so that we might be free. See, we don't think of ransom too much. Although there's this new thing on the computer, ransomware, so the word's coming up now and then. Redeemed? You know, if we cheapen that word, coupons at a grocery store. That's what we think of with redeemed. But the last word. See, we take so much for granted. The word is liberated or made free. See, we're born Americans. We've always known freedom, right? No one here was born into slavery. No one here that I know of has been captured. And we've all been born free. In fact, we feel entitled. We're Americans. So we don't really understand the impact of these terms for the Jews and Gentiles that are hearing them. But I want you to think and be honest about how sin infects and affects us. How we see bondage enslavement. Think about sex traffickers. Think about people traffickers. Think about drug addiction. You want to get an idea of what it is to be enslaved? We have our ideas. And those people who would claim, in some cases, understanding what freedom really is, it's no freedom at all. And that's why God sent His Son. Because we need a Savior. Because God so loved us that He sent His Son. 
to ransom us, redeem us, and liberate us. Paul, by the time he gets to chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's where sin leads. But the free gift of God, understand gift to be by grace, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The sacrifice of atonement for us. It's not had by human achievement. It's not had because we are so righteous or good. It's had because God so loved us that he died for us. You know, when God gave the law, Deuteronomy chapter 5, to define what it is to be holy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you really understand why God has done what he's done for you. And if you really understand what he wants for you and from you, he just wants you to receive his love and then share his love. That's why Jesus died on a cross in our place for our sin. That's what holiness is really all about. And we have a choice. We have a choice to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We have the choice to repent. Not to feel bad, not to grovel, to repent. To change the focus of our hearts, our minds, our lives. And we have the opportunity to live in his love and in his grace. The righteous shall live by faith. And it's your choice. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord God, sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's overt. <clears throat> but our, our culture will talk about the gods out there or whether God exists at all or how we separate faith from our public life. Because many in our culture act as if there is no God. Or there is a God and it's of their own creation. Lord, open our eyes to the reality of the human condition. All of us share. Open our eyes to our own individual fallibility and flaws and sinfulness. But at the same time, open our hearts to the outpouring of your grace, the gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ. That we need a Savior and we need a Lord. Because in and of ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. And in and of ourselves, we would mess up our lives. But by your grace, we can be ransomed, redeemed, liberated, and loved. Lord, I pray this day, that everyone here 
would know the depth of your love, the preciousness of your gift, that they would choose to be people of faith and to be righteous because they live by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name.